why don't we just take a second and, uh, and pray? And I invite you guys to pray with me. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. And God, we, um, we think of the persecuted church. We think of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian or Pastor Wang or Pastor John in China for the Christians in Afghanistan and North Korea in the South Sudan, in Somalia and Eritrea. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us, Lord, we, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with us. I pray for an added degree of faith and encouragement for them. Please God help them. Please help them, Jesus. Lord, um, for the president, I pray for wisdom. I pray for uh, a grace upon his life that you would protect him um, physically, um, mentally, his, his mental faculties, Lord. You would be kind to him, Lord, not because he deserves it, Lord, um, but because we're told to pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not, in First Timothy. Um, and, and God, I, I also think of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, uh, those in the space force. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation. Because so many of those guys, they don't, they don't know you. They don't love you. They're not walking with you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me, help us, free us from distraction. Help us to hear what um, you have for us today. Help me to handle the word accurately and truthfully, to, to say only what you want me to say. If, if there's something I shouldn't say, then Lord, don't, don't let me say it. Don't let me say it, God. And um, give us ears to hear today. We want to hear from you, Jesus. We need to hear from you. So please help us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so I, I love expository preaching. Um, there's a lot of reasons. It's awesome. That's usually the best one I go with. But that's usually where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book in the Bible. And so we have been going through John's Gospel. This is the 27th sermon I have preached in John's Gospel. Uh, this is um, part 27. And so we're picking up in John chapter 9, verse 6. John chapter 9, verse 6. And to kind of set this up for you, uh, if you weren't here two weeks ago when I last preached. Well, I didn't preach last week because I was in D.C. with the army. But two weeks ago, I did. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And Jesus meets the man who's blind from birth. There's a man. He's blind from birth. And Jesus meets with him. And Jesus announces in John 9, 5 that he is the light of the world. It's not the first time we've heard this announcement, uh, but once again, it's just a reminder. He's the light of the world. And what we have here in verse 6, we pick up. The story says this, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So, makes a mud paste. And remember, he's just reminded the people he's the light of the world. It's one thing to say that. It's another to prove it. And, and I think in a day and age in which politicians will make all sorts of promises, they'll say whatever they think they need to say to get elected, to stay in power, to get your votes. Jesus shows up here and he doesn't just make the claim. He doesn't just offer empty words. 
Now he's going to back up what he just said. He's going to illustrate this very point by giving light to the man born blind. So he makes the mud paste, puts it on his eyes, verse 7, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. That's what Siloam means. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now, if you direct your attention to the screen behind me right here, um, this is kind of a, a rough sketch from taking from the ESV Study Bible, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, what Jerusalem would have looked like in the time of Jesus. And in the southern part, on the bottom of the screen, that's actually the reservoir of the pool of Siloam. And the pool is actually um, right behind it in that building. So, so this, is, this is where the scene is taking place right now. And what's really interesting about this, at least I thought it was interesting, is you go back nearly 800 years to the time of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32. Hezekiah was dealing with a lot of socio-political issues of his day, and the biggest issue was um, the Assyrian invasion. He was deathly afraid that the Assyrians were going to lay siege to the city, and if someone lays siege to a city, that's going to cut off all the supplies, including water, and you kind of need water. So he actually went to the nearby springs, and he built tunnels to take the water inside here to the pool of Siloam so that if the city came under siege, there would be this continual water supply. It's also from the same pool in which during the Feast of Tabernacles, when they had the water festival, the priests would come and they would draw from this very pool. And so Jesus tells the man here, he puts the mud in his eyes. He says, I want you to go. He tells him to go to Siloam, the pool there, which means sent. And the man comes back seeing. He can see. I think this is so cool. Um, the man was healed, was sent to a pool called Sent, and was healed by the one who was sent by God himself. But of course this raises some questions. Jesus heals the man with this, with this mud, mud paste. I mean, he could have said, eyes be open." Could have said that. I mean, after all, this is the same guy who commands the wind and the waves. They obey him. He could have said it, but he doesn't. And in case you think this may be some random event or accident, on, on the contrary, you, you see, the reason that he uses the mud in the paste is because he, he knew it was Saturday. He knew it was the Sabbath. He's going to do it this way because it's against the law to knead dough or clay or mud on the Sabbath. This was one of 39 interpretations from the Pharisees as what it meant to work on Saturday, specifically the, the kneading of, of dough. And the word for dough is actually identical to the word for mud or clay. In other words, no, it is no accident that Jesus is going to heal him this way. Jesus' goal, you might say, was to break the law, at least the version of the law as understood by the Pharisees. See, for them, their version of it had become sort of this idol which they would use to, to weaponize against other people. And Jesus does it this way because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the whole point. Jesus wants everyone to recognize him for who he is. Who is he? Well, he said it back in verse 5. I'm the light of the world. He wants us to recognize him as who he is, to humble ourselves, to worship him, to see God behind everything happening, good and bad, sovereignly in control of our world. And as we already said, Jesus could have simply commanded the man's eyes be open. He could have healed him instantly. 
But as we often observe in Scripture, God often uses ordinary means in creation to bring about extraordinary things for his glory. Or as Solomon would say in Proverbs 21:31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. But the victory belongs to the Lord. I love this verse. It's such a great verse. If you haven't seen it, now you have. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God doesn't need a horse any more than he needs mud in this story, but he uses both for his glory. And we may use mud, we may use medicine, or horses, or technology. The goal is that we would marvel at the king of the universe, that we would see the handiwork of God in everything in these short lives of ours. Horace John Piper would say, God does not despise the physical world he has made. He uses the means of food to sustain life. He uses the means of sex to bring about children. And he uses a thousand remedies to bring about healing. From sleep to penicillin, from vitamins to radiation, from sunshine on the skin to cough syrup for the throat. And as believers, we ought to marvel and give glory to God for every single mercy he has given us. So the next time that you have a sore throat and you take a cough drop to relieve the pain, you can marvel at the glory of God in the relief that that cough drop brings you. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The man is healed. The man's healed. He can see. The neighbors, verse 8, and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Yes, it is he. Others said, mm, No, but he's kind of like him. And he kept saying, No, 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 it's me, guys. I'm the man. It's me. And so they said to him, Well, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I, I don't know. And I always sort of marvel when people, and you may have had conversations with people like this. They're like, yeah, like if, if God would do miracles like today that he did, like in the Bible times, I would definitely believe. I'm like, no, you wouldn't. That's not really true. Because right here he does. And they still come up with reasons not to believe. They still come up with reasons to explain away how the very thing they have witnessed didn't really happen. This is exactly what's going on. The guy's like, no, no, guys, it's, it's me. I'm your neighbor. Eh, I don't really know. Like, I'm your neighbor. You know me. Can't really be the same person, can it? <sighs> so they brought to the Pharisees, verse 13, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath. Uh -huh. Now we're getting to the root of the issue. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. In verse 14, for the very first time, John mentions that the healing had taken place on a Sabbath. So here's what's going on. The people are undecided about this guy, if he really was healed or not, if it was really him or not. And so they go to their synagogue leaders, they go to their religious leaders, and they say, listen, how are we supposed to think about this specific situation? So the Pharisees again asked him, verse 15, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, well, hold on a second. Hold on. How, how, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So that they said to the blind man, well, what do you say about him? And since he has opened your eyes, he said, he's a prophet. He's something, right? Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. And had received his sight until da, da, da. they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He's at least 13 years old. That's what I'm saying when he says he's of age. He could have been 20. He could have been 30. We don't know. But at a minimum, the reference to he's of age, that he's at least 13. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said these things. Oh. Oh, that's why. Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Here's what's going on. The, the parents are very careful to answer these questions. They answer the first question, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's our son. Oh, yes to the second question, he was born blind. And then notice they, they kind of shy away from the last question. Say, so, oh, how, how does he see? What do they say? I, ask, him, ask, him, ask him yourself. He's old enough. And, and the reason they do this is because they're scared. They're, they're really scared. <laughs> and what's interesting is this. Contrary to what the parents told the Pharisees, that they don't know, ask him, they evidently did know that Jesus healed their son. See, had they not known, there would have been no reason for them to be afraid that the Jews might put them out of, out of the synagogue because of Jesus. If they really didn't know, there's no reason to be afraid. Apparently they do know. They do know that Jesus did this. And the idea of being put out of the synagogue, it's hard to overemphasize like, what a big deal this is to be cut off from social and religious life. It was dreaded punishment. And the truth is this, guys. There is a great risk to following Christ regardless of what century you live in. More so every year. I think part of the, the, the really worthwhile reflection of this story is right here. That we might consider this, that we might count the cost. Is it worth it? Is following Christ worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Because if I'm telling you, if you don't think through some of these scenarios right now, if you don't figure out this stuff right now, then when you inevitably find yourself in a situation where you're facing the external pressure from the world, you'll probably just end up caving like the boy's parents. Mm -hmm. you know, in, in that situation where you get invited to, I don't know, um, a wedding, of a member from the LGBTQIA plus community. And you know you can't go. Because it's not a real wedding. Because it's not a real marriage. But if you don't go. They're going to call you every name in the book. They're going to say you're a bigot. And they and others are going to shun you. And say terrible things about you on your account of your relationship with Jesus. Like everyone should observe the parents in this story and decide like today, 
Who do you care more about, pleasing the world or pleasing Jesus? Like, we need to figure that out, guys. Like, it's 2024. Like, we should have this figured out, like, like a long time ago. We need to figure this out. And so, verse 24, it says, So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They don't, they don't want to give any credit to this guy, Jesus, for the healing. Which is really telling, because at this point, it's becoming more and more evident that he really did get healed. I mean, his parents just confirmed it. And, and this is the, really, religious hypocrisy at its finest. This is where people will use Christian language. They don't, they don't like, really mean it. Usually, like, in the South, I consider this the South because I'm from Alaska, right? I think anything below the Mason-Dixon line, right? That's the South. But you know the language, right? They're like, oh, bless him. And you know that that doesn't really mean what, what it means, right? And that's, that's where they, they use this religious language. People who use religious language to say things don't really mean the very thing that they're saying. Give glory to God because we know this man is the sinner. This is like today when people like talk about like DEI. You know what DEI is? You guys all know what DEI is. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're like, don't you want these things? Like only a really terrible person wouldn't want these things. Like only a really terrible person would disagree with DEI. See, it's always interesting to me. I think it is. People who prize diversity and inclusion, they're totally for it until someone else has a difference of opinion. Then they don't want diversity at all. Then they don't want inclusion at all. They tell the man born blind, if you don't acknowledge that he's a sinner, that Jesus fellow, well, then you can't, you can't glorify God. And only a really awful person would deny God's glory. Okay. Here's his answer, verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you guys already. My paraphrase of vocal tone. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, do you also want to become his disciples? You guys must really like this Jesus guy. See, at the point, he's getting a little annoyed, a little snarky, a little sarcastic. I'm good with it. This amazing miracle has taken place. They know it. And instead of being happy, instead of rejoicing, instead of glorifying God, the very thing they insisted that the man do, they're just mad. They're mad that Jesus did the miracle. And so... He's fed up at this point, and he tells them, oh, you guys must really, really like this guy. You want to become his disciple. Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Uh, this is just them being like super self-righteous. This would be today like saying, we are Baptist, which we are, but we are Baptist, right? Oh, we're Methodists, we're Lutheran, we're Presbyterians, we're better than you. That's all it is, right? It's nothing more than this arrogant display of self-righteousness because the guy has called them out. For the religious leaders, they don't like the glory getting stolen from them. Because this guy, Jesus, is a loser from their point of view. Mm -hmm. He didn't attend their rabbinical schools. He didn't come from a popular family. He didn't come from the right part of town. This guy, Jesus, is a nobody. So they invoke Moses' name. Moses is a somebody. Jesus is a nobody. And they're like, we're right. We're biblical. We have a Bible. Just because someone has a Bible doesn't mean they're right. 
Just because someone has a Bible doesn't mean they're biblical. Mm -hmm. They're only biblical if they actually open the Bible and do what it says. Open the Bible and love and obey and serve Jesus. Just to be real clear on that. And so verse 30, it says this. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He says, open your Bibles. How many people in the Old Testament who were blind got healed? Can you count them for me? Oh, that's right. Zero. And you want to argue with me about this? So we have to understand for the rabbis, they didn't forbid all acts of mercy on the Sabbath. You could do some acts of mercy if, say, someone's life was in imminent danger. But technically, this blind man's life wasn't in imminent danger. See, that's where the issue is, right? That the blind man didn't technically fall in the, in, 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 within those parameters, within those rules. And so the blind man tells them, you guys are crazy, right? You're mad because Jesus healed me on the Sabbath. They're mad because Jesus didn't heal him during normal business hours. <laughs> what? That's it, right? They are mad because he wasn't healed during normal business hours. He says, you guys are a joke. You pretend to love God, but it's super clear you don't. And the sad truth is, guys, there are people like this in many churches today who pretend to love God, but they don't. They love the rules, but they don't love God. They love control, but they don't love God. They love the social clubs and their status and their position and their committees, but they don't love God. And the religious leaders here, they're more concerned with normal business operating hours than the Sabbath. Like, are you kidding me? And they've forgotten that the real meaning of the Sabbath is that the Sabbath was made as a gift for man by God. I've totally forgotten that. Well, you can imagine that they probably don't like the tone of this guy's voice at this point, if it was anything like mine over the last 60 seconds. So they're done. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Would you lecture us? How dare you talk to us that way? And they cast him out. Now, the arrogance and the self-righteousness hits an all-time high. Uh, it's like saying, you, you can't tell us the truth about anything because you're too young. Mm. Or you're too old. Or because you're not, like, from where I grew up. Or you are from where I grew up. And, and so here's what happens. And this is really, I think, par for the course. But when you tell people the truth who don't want to hear the truth, they often retaliate with, like, ad hominem attacks. And the implication, I think, is pretty clear. They say, the, the reason you had this condition to begin with, the reason that you were born blind is because your parents had you out of wedlock. Mm. Now here's where it gets really interesting. I don't think I've ever noticed it until this week when I was working on the sermon. They make these personal attacks, they lash out, and yet in doing so, they now admit the fact that the man really was healed. Did you notice that? When, when they lash out in verse 34, they admit to the fact that he really was born blind. And they're like, oh yeah, this is the reason you were born blind, because your parents had you had sex out of wedlock, right? A point they had earlier denied in verse 18. 
Like this is the sign usually like in the legal movies when they're like, tell me the truth, you can't handle the truth, right? And then the guy's on the stand, he gets all emotional and then he ends up basically like talking and saying way too much and then the attorney's like, no further questions. They've now just confirmed the thing that they denied back in verse 18. Yes, he really was blind, which means yes, he really was healed. And so what do they do? They boot him out. He's gone. He's excommunicated. <coughs> You're out. He's cut off now from religious and social life. He, he's effectively targeted because of his beliefs. This would be like, I don't know, like in our day and age, let's just pretend for a moment. Um, if someone, say, from like a big tech company shut down or suspended your social media on account of your relationship with Jesus, or um, let's say like you run a, a small business or a bakery, mm. And, and people know you have deep Christian beliefs, and so they intentionally target you, they go after you, they bring suit against you for what's so-called discrimination. Or let's just pretend for a second, right? The federal government sends their IRS agents to go after you because you're a Christian. Oh, wait. Those are all real things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. That's right. Never mind. We'll keep going. But, but that, that's what's happening, guys. That's what it would be like today, in a way. See, the problem is the religious leaders, they're so tunnel vision in this situation that they don't remember the ancient promises of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 29 and 35 and 42, that one of the signs of the messianic age is the restoration of sight to the blind. And so here, here's the really important point. Unless the Holy Spirit opens their blind eyes, they are going to continue to deny the veracity of such accounts, no matter what the evidence is. And so the man's gone, he's kicked out, he's targeted because of his beliefs. Verse 35, and Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. More on these verses in just a moment. And then he goes into verse 39, it says, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. For judgment, I came into the world. And the reason that phrase is so interesting is because when you look at, say, John 3, 17, it says, right there, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or you look at John 12, 47, which Jesus himself says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But we just read... That he did come for the purpose of judgment. And so what we have here in verse 39 is a contradiction. But fear not. The contradiction is only apparent. In other words, it only seems like a contradiction. And that's because when Jesus says that he did not come to judge in 317 and 1247, he means that condemnation and judgment is not his first or his primary purpose. And, and John Piper offered a really helpful illustration by what he means here. This, this would be like if a doctor, got some med guys in here. This would be if a doctor came in, he was called to amputate a man's life because of this horrible infection in order to save his life. And just before the sick man goes under anesthesia, his doctor asked, he asked the doctor, excuse me, did you come to cut off my arm? And the doctor answers, I, I didn't come to cut off your arm, I came to save your life. And we would all know what he meant. And that's how I think we reconcile verse 39 where he says, I'm here for judgment. And then the other places where he says, I'm not here for judgment. In other words, what began as a miracle of healing 
The physical blindness of the man has now become this picture of healing of spiritual blindness. So when Jesus says, those who see may become blind, the idea is that as these phony religious types of people are exposed to the truth, they are exposed to the light of the world, they are exposed to Jesus, the more they are exposed, the more they resist, the darker and darker their blindness becomes. And so some of the Pharisees, verse 40, near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? In other words, the thinking of the Pharisees is this. If we are spiritually blind, how can we be responsible to see? How can we be judged for not seeing if we're blind? I mean, if we're blind, we can't really have any sin or guilt. After all, you can't judge a blind person for not seeing. At least I hope you wouldn't. That'd be really awkward and uncomfortable. How dare you not see, you blind person? Right? Like, like that's, that's their argument here. That's the objection they're raising. And, and notice the phrase back in verse 39. That those who see may become blind. Now that's rather interesting, isn't it? Because if you can see, then you're not blind. See, what Jesus is saying in sort of this ironic way is those who think they can see like the Pharisees, and like everyone like them, who are overly confident in themselves, in their pedigree, in their own self-righteousness, and yet they're 100% wrong. Those are the sorts of people he's talking about who think they can see that they're really spiritually blind. And so he said in verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is what Jesus is saying. Those individuals who have good, working, physical eyes, who think they are the cat's meow, who think they are the greatest thing since sliced bread, they think they're so smart, they think like they can reason so well, and, and they see and they witness all this evidence, or they hear sermons like the one being preached right now. They even read their Bible. They've got passages memorized. They know all this information about this Jesus guy, but they still won't admit they need him. They still won't admit they need to be born again. They still won't admit that they need like spiritual life. He says, your guilt, it remains on you despite you saying that you actually see. And Jesus, he is the light of the world. And while judgment and condemnation is not his primary task, it is nonetheless his task. And for those who reject him, they stand condemned and face the wrath of God and eternal punishment in a real place of suffering called hell. But remember what happens after he's kicked out of the synagogue. Remember verse 34, they kicked him out? And we'll go back to verse 35 for a second. I love this part right here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, well, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Let's consider just for a second the journey that we've made through chapter 9 as it pertains to the man formerly blind. The man has now gone from seeing Jesus as just a man back in verse 11 to seeing him as a, a prophet in verse 17 to now worshipping him as God in verse 38. And the Pharisees, what have they done? They've moved in the opposite direction. Verse 16, this man Jesus, he's not from God. Verse 22, oh yeah, if anyone confesses that Jesus is the Christ, yeah, he's God. Verse 24, oh, that Jesus guy, he's a sinner. They move in the opposite direction. 
See, throughout this story, the religious leaders, they move further and further away from God, and the man born blind moves closer and closer toward God. In this story right here, the man born blind, he's rejected. All the religious leaders, they kick him out. He's gone. He's rejected by them all. And what does Jesus do? He comes to find him. I love that. I love that. Like he's, he's excommunicated. Everyone like rejects him. He's all alone. And some of you guys know what that feels like. Some of you guys, you've been rejected by people you thought were your friends. Some of you guys have been rejected by people, shunned by people that you were supposed to, like, they were supposed to be your family members, and you still carry those pains, those, excuse me, those hurts and those pains. And I think a beautiful part of this story is that Jesus comes to find the man, just as Jesus comes to find every one of us who is lost. And so he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He wants to get down to brass tacks. It's a title that comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's Jesus' favorite title that he uses sometimes, over 80 times to describe himself. The Son of Man, who is God as King, entering into human history as a king. And this is the pivotal question that he asked the man. It is the most important question that every one of us must answer. Do you believe? One answer takes you down one way. One answer takes you down another camp. Right? All throughout John 9, the man born blind is constantly moving closer and closer and closer toward God. And all the religious leaders, right? They went to Christian schools. They did the homeschooling co-ops. They did the Awana stuff. They did all that jazz, right? They're moving further and further and further away. Do you believe? Everyone else rejects him. Jesus comes. For him. And he asked him that question. A question that we all must answer. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. I thank you for this truly uh, encouraging story in John 9. And I, I pray, Lord, for, for those of us here today, Lord, um, that you would protect us from the, the sins of these religious hypocrites, that you would protect us from uh, self-deception, that you would protect us from religious hypocrisy, that you would protect us from a lot of the junk that is you know, used kind of as this false pretense for love of God. I pray we really would love you, that we really would recognize you for who you are, that we would really see you the way the man in this story does and then it would radically change us and make us more like your son. We pray this in your great name. Amen.